Uh, Bible college professor Bill Thrasher told about one of his Asian students, a man by the name of Ming. In his late 50s, Ming left a very good career as a chemical engineer to begin studying to be a pastor. Uh, One day while interning at a local church, he went to the hospital to visit a woman who was very ill. Now, he discovered that this woman was very bitter, and she was very hostile. She wasted no time in telling Ming she did not want to visit from him or from anyone else from that church. Ming asked, can I pray? She said, if you want to. As Ming bowed to pray for this woman, no words came. In fact, all he could do was cry. Later, relating this incident to his professor, he said he felt like a total failure as a budding pastor. I'm 50 years old, he said. I left a good career as a chemical engineer. I'm studying to become a pastor. I'm, I'm planning to get a master's in Bible. Yet when this woman needed to hear from God most, I could not even pray. All I could do was cry. I want to ask you a couple of questions about that. Number one, is crying in God's presence a form of prayer? And number two, if so, do you think God answered me? Now, I think you know the answer to both questions is what? Yes. In fact, let me tell you what God did. When Ming cried in prayer to God, it softened the heart of this wounded woman towards him and towards the Lord. She never expected a total stranger to show such compassion towards her. As a result, God began to heal her bitterness. And as her bitterness receded, Her health improved dramatically. And all God's people said, never doubt the efficacy of prayer, right? Never ever doubt the efficacy of prayer. If God could do that for this woman, what can God work through prayer for us? We've been looking together at a series of psalms that are really confidence prayers. And this morning we are coming to a third in this series. We are coming to Psalm 5, which I have entitled, How to Pray Confidently in Crisis. Now the key theme in every confidence psalm is the confidence that believers can have when they face the crises of life. Many Bible students believe that Psalms 3, 4, and 5 were all written by David when he was pursued by his own son, Absalom. 
Psalm 3 is a morning prayer. It was written the first morning after the crisis when God brought David safely over the Jordan River. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer, uh, probably written sometime later. And then Psalm 5 is another morning prayer, very possibly written again another morning during this crisis. Now, would, would you follow what this means? Time and time again, prayer sustained David as he fled for his life from his own son. This morning we want to learn how prayer can do the same for us. Would you just for a moment bow your heart with me today? And let's ask God to teach us his wonderful ways in our life. Father, we ask today that you would open our hearts towards you. Oh God, your heart is open towards us. And there is so much that you desire to accomplish within us. Prayer is one of the greatest avenues by which we experience an intimacy with our God. And as a result of that intimacy, find confidence to face whatever crises we are going through. And we ask, O oh God, today that you would teach us your ways and how we can be people of prayer. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 5. And as you do, we are going to see that Psalm 5 really asks and answers three questions about prayer. In the opening three verses, what we learn is how we ought to pray. Then in verses 4 to 7 and 9 and 10, we learn a very critical question, which you may not have thought about before. Who can pray? And then finally, David closes out by saying, when you're in a crisis, what are the greatest things that you ought to pray for? So let's begin, shall we, with this opening question, how should we pray? And would you read with me verses 1 to 3? Follow along as I read from Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning, and I believe it ought to say here, hear my voice. In the morning... I direct my prayer to you, and I watch. Now, how should we pray? Well, I want you to notice, to begin with, that we are told here that there are two types of prayer that can be uttered. Charles Spurgeon, in his great volume on the Psalms, says this, There are two sorts of prayer, those expressed in words and the unuttered longings which abide as silent meditations. He says, words are not the essence of prayer, but they are the garments of prayer. Now clearly, David prayed in words, for he wrote them down for us. In fact, on this great crisis in his life, we have very possibly three prayers, Psalm 3, 4, and 5, that he wrote down for us. But I want you to notice at the end of verse 1, at the beginning of verse 2, David also prayed with groans and cries. Now, follow this. If words are mental prayers, groans are emotional prayers. 
The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans 8.26, and he says, Sometimes we pray with groanings that cannot be uttered. Sometimes before the Lord, all we can do is cry. By the way, let me ask you this morning, how do you put into words when your own son is trying to murder you? What words would you use? Sometimes our emotions are so troubled, all we have are silent words spoken within the heart to God. And what is so wonderful here is God wants both, doesn't he? God wants our mental prayers when we are confident And he also wants our emotional prayers when we are not. What a wonderful thing this is saying about God. He is there. He is there. When I know what to say, he's there. When I don't know what to say, and all I can do is sob, he is there. What a great and wonderful God He is. Now notice in these verses that David moves from telling us the two types of prayers that we can utter, those with words and and the silent prayers of the heart, to tell us there are three attitudes with which we ought to pray. Notice prayer ought to be urgent, not convenient. Did you notice these commands? Give ear to my words, O Lord. God, give attention to what I'm going through. And then in verse 3, um, my Bible has it as a, as a sort of a, a, a statement to God. You hear my voice, but it probably is better as, as a wish or a request. Lord, hear my voice. Now you put all of this together and you sense with David there is a real sense of urgency in this matter of prayer. The very first thing he does in the morning is he goes to God in prayer. When I was in seminary, Professor Hannah said to us, said to us you can get through seminary without, without prayer. And you know he was right. I call it giving the old college try. You just discipline yourself. You get your teeth. You have determination. You're willing to stay up all night to write those papers, college students. Yeah, I know, I've been there. I've been there. And he said, you can get through seminary without prayer. And he was right. But said Professor Hannah, you will not be able to make it in the ministry without prayer. He said the spiritual battle is just too great. The pressures, the problems, the temptations, the opposition, the disappointments will be far more than you can bear alone. And you will find that prayer becomes an urgency that it was not in your student days. Let me ask you today, are you at that place in your life? Where prayer is not a convenience, it is an urgency? If you're not there, may I say to you, 
You will be. You will be. One of the greatest definitions I've ever heard of prayer, I heard from J.I. Packer, who wrote the best-selling Knowing God. When I heard him define prayer in this way, I never forgot it. I wrote this down from my memory. This is what he said. He said, all true prayer is the pouring out of the heart to God who can meet our need. It is the greatest definition of prayer I have ever read. And when we get to that place where we understand this is what prayer is about, it becomes urgent. I want you to notice that prayer also should be persistent. A second attitude in prayer is it ought to be persistent. Notice in verse 3, twice David says, in the morning. In the morning, he says, I prepare and, and I direct my prayer to you as the, as the note here in my uh, English Standard Version says. The uh, implication here is as soon as it is morning, every morning, says David. It was a persistent issue. I'm sure that you've wrestled with the question, how long should you pray about something? I'm sure you've wrestled with that question. The two best answers that I know as to how long you ought to pray about something are these. Number one, until God gives an answer. Or number two, until God takes away the burden. Those are the best answers I know. You keep praying until the Lord answers or He takes the burden away. And you no longer feel the need to pray for that issue. You see, God works mightily in our life through prayer. We all know that. So therefore, we are to keep praying. Now thirdly, the third attitude in this psalm is that prayer should be expectant. So prayer ought to be urgent, it ought to be persistent, and it ought to be expectant. James 1.6 tells us we are to ask in faith, nothing doubting. Uh, Would you notice in verse 2, David prayed to my God and my King. Let me ask you this morning. Do you faintly remember somebody who after the resurrection fell at the feet of Jesus and said something very similar to this? Do you remember doubting Thomas? How he said, I will not believe unless I see the nail prints in his hand and the spear thrust into his side, the wound. And then Jesus appeared to him And Thomas saw him, and Jesus said, put your finger here and put your hand here. And the Bible says that Thomas fell at his feet, and he said, my Lord and my God. Probably Thomas was echoing David here in Psalm 5.2, when David said, my King and my God. By the way, let me ask you this morning. Can you say that? Can you address the Lord in prayer as my king and my God? Now David was a king. And he knew kings can do things for others that other people cannot. And so he goes to the Lord, he says, you're my king. 
David was in covenant relationship with God as a believer so he could pray to the Lord, God, you are my God. So follow what this means then. David trusted in God's ability as his king and he trusted in God's willingness as his God for his child. And so David prayed in faith and in expectancy. One of the greatest comments that I've ever read about prayer, again, came from the great Greek scholar R.C. Trench. Listen to what he said. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but it is laying hold of his highest willingness. If that is true, and it is, then we ought to pray with faith and expectancy. Listen, God knows what he's doing in your life and mine, even if we do not. So therefore, we ought to pray with a great sense of expectancy. When I was a freshman, my first semester in college, we had a wonderful professor. He was an Indian man and and a great teacher whom we loved. He said, I had three friends who were not Christians. And I began to pray that all three would become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said the first one became a Christian after five years. The second one became a Christian after ten years. He said it has now been 25 years. We are still praying for the third one. If you had two friends that you prayed for and they became Christians within five and ten years, would that not encourage you that God could answer your prayer about the third one, though it has been 25 years? That is praying with faith. That is praying with faith. Now in this passage, David moves on to answer the second question. Who can pray? Who can pray? Many years ago, there was a national debate over this question. Does God hear everyone's prayers? Let me ask you, how would you answer that question? Does God hear everyone's prayers? Another way to put it is this. Do some people's prayers bounce off heavens like brass and never get through to God? Does God answer the prayers or hear the prayers of everyone, no matter who they are? Now, one of the things that I've learned in my life as I've studied the Bible is that when you have a question, you go to the Bible to get the answer. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what some great person in our country says and answer that question. The real issue is, what does the Bible say? And here in this psalm, what David does is he answers the question, who can pray? And what he does is he gives for us the conditions for answered prayer. May I just ask you this morning, please focus on this today. 
These are the people that God says can answer, I will answer, who can pray to me, so that their prayers do not bounce back as if off a bronze ceiling. Now let's notice what these conditions are, all right? First of all, we must deal with our sin problem. Look at verse 4 here in Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty man and the deceitful man. Drop down to verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. Now, I want you to notice in verse 4, what we have is a general statement about God's nature. God is not only a powerful God, but He is a holy God. When verse 4 says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness, that is an ironic understatement saying the negative of what it really means. It intensifies the thought to say, God is a God who does not delight in wickedness, means that He is a God who hates, abhors, and destroys all who persist in sinful rebellion, as he says in verses 5, 6, 9, and 10. Now let's be very, very careful here. This does not mean that God is primarily emotional about sin. But what it does mean is that God must judge and oppose All sin which he hates and despises. So we are not to read this as though God opposes people as people, but rather we are to read it as God opposes people who do not deal with their sin. In fact, did you notice at the end of verse 4, he says, evil people may not dwell with you. And the word dwell there is a very interesting word. It was a reference to oriental hospitality that was extended to newcomers. In the ancient world, if you were a newcomer in a city, it was a sacred duty that people that lived there would extend hospitality to you. Now what we expect from God, he says in this verse, he will not do. In fact, I want you to notice two things that show God's opposition to sin and all who persist in not dealing with it. There is a general description in verse 4, but that general description leads to a more specific description. So that God does not delight in wickedness or evil. And then we begin to see the description of it. Those who are boastful. Those who speak lies. Those who have no truth in their mouth. Those who are bloodthirsty and deceitful. Those who flatter with their tongue. And then you will notice that the verbs for God's reaction to sin gets stronger and more intense as the verses go. So first, he doesn't delight in it, 
But then we see he hates it, then he destroys it, and then ultimately he abhors it. All of this is demonstrating God's holy nature as one who must be opposed to all sin. Say, in our day, we don't take sin this seriously, do we? In fact, how we even talk about it shows how unserious we take it. We call cheating fudging, don't we? If you've cheated, well, you just fudged a little bit. We call adultery an affair, don't we? If we lie, well, we call that a mistake. And fornication is called cohabitation. Recently, a well-known journalist was caught in multiple lies. He said they weren't lies. Over and over again, he was asked, did you lie? No, I didn't lie, he said. He said, what the problem was, was my ego got in the way. Do you know one of our presidential contenders was asked, do you ask God for forgiveness? He said, no. I just make things right with people myself when I realize I'm wrong. What a huge misunderstanding of sin that is. What a huge misunderstanding of the nature of God. Listen, our primary problem in sin is not with others. It is with God. And God is so opposed to sin because of His righteous and and holy nature that He simply cannot and will not hear the prayers of those who do not deal with the sin of their lives. Some people have had real trouble with the very strong reaction of some of these psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms in which uh, the the writer is, is calling judgment down upon his enemies. And some people have struggled. How could they speak this way in this language? And I think C.S. Lewis was uh, perhaps one who gave us a tremendous amount of help on why the writer speaks this way. In his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, listen to what Lewis said about the strong language in these imprecatory psalms. Listen to what he says. If the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part because they took right and wrong more seriously. For if we look at their railings, we find they're usually angry, not simply because these things have been done to them, but because these things are manifestly wrong and hateful to God as well as to the victim. You see, it is this kind of sensitivity to sin that is absolutely essential if we want God to accept us. Now that leads to a second condition. Second condition is this, we must accept God's grace in salvation. Look at what David says in verse 7. 
But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Now, by the way, do you expect that? Wouldn't you have expected at this point for David to say, but I'm so much better than my enemies. I'm going to enter into God's presence based upon the fact that I'm better than they are. I'm different. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. By the way, do you know who these previous verses apply to? They apply to all of us. Verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. That is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.13 to reveal the universal problem of sin. Paul quotes this verse to say, all of us are under sin. And by the way, did you notice the quickest way to see that is how we talk. And isn't that true? Our mouth is often the sorriest thing about us. And so what do we need? We need what David needed. David said in verse 7, Lord, I'm coming before you because of one reason and one reason alone. It is the abundance of your steadfast love. That is a wonderful word in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word hesed, which refers to God's grace and covenant love. Now follow this. David is the ancestor of Jesus Christ, his greater son. Jesus came that he might go to that cross, that he might pay for our sins and rise again. In doing so, he satisfied justice. He now extends mercy. And when we repent and trust Him, He forgives us and brings us into a covenant relationship with God. In fact, Paul refers to this in Romans 5, 2, when he says about Jesus, Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Just as David stood only by grace... So now we stand only through grace. By the way, would you compare verse 9 with verse 7? Look at verse 9. Here's our problem, the abundance of our transgressions. What meets that problem? Verse 7, the abundance of your steadfast love. The very problem that we have is adequately and only adequately met by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so who can pray? Well, it's those who have dealt with their sin problem. How do we deal with our sin problem? Well, we have to come to God's grace in Christ for salvation. And then there is a third condition that David adds. Look at the third condition. We must humbly submit ourselves to God's will. Look at the end of verse 7. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Some of our Bibles have the word worship here. I will worship towards your holy temple. 
The word worship literally means to bow down. It was a reference to the oriental attitude of reverence to a superior that is still practiced in the Middle East today. You watch an oriental and someone of importance who walks into the room, an oriental will stand and they will bow in reverence. It is the very same concept here. And here's what he is saying to us. Once God has saved us, we must now submit our lives and our requests to His will and His purposes. This is exactly what Jesus said when in the Lord's Prayer He taught us, before you ever get to your requests, you pray, Thy will be done. There is a humble submission of ourselves to God and a humble submission of our requests to His will. Let me ask you this morning, how again would you answer the question? Does God hear everyone's prayers? The answer according to the Bible is here are the conditions. We have to deal with our sin problem. He's a holy God. God has dealt with it Himself in the grace of Hesed. Mercy and covenant love that He gives to those who come to His Son. And then when we do, there is a submission and reverence that comes to our hearts. And thus we come to the Lord and we say, Okay now, Lord, as I come to You having this great privilege, I submit my life and my request to You. Now, in all of these psalms, there are takeaways that we find at the end of the psalm. And so David has told us how we ought to pray. He's made it very clear who can pray. And let me give you the, the final takeaways this morning. What should we pray for? What should we pray for? Would you look at verse 8? Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor, as with a shield. As you look at those verses, you will hear a very interesting echo from another part of your Bible. That echo are the last two requests in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, in teaching us to pray, the last two requests He gave were, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Now here in Psalm 5, the two requests as to what we ought to pray for exactly match these two requests in the Lord's Prayer. In verse 8, David says we are to pray, Lord, lead me to avoid the errors of my enemies. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Do you know the greatest need we have when we are being opposed or harmed or wounded is that we not become like the people who are wronging us. It's the greatest need that we have. And so we come and we say, Lord, lead me now to avoid the very errors of those who are wronging me, lest I should become like them. And then the second request. Protect me, Lord, from their plans, which are Satan's plans against me. See, the battle is a spiritual battle. It is with the spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. And the desire of Satan and all of his hosts is to destroy our walk with God and what God intends to do in our life. And we can come in any situation where we are being wounded, hurt, opposed, or wronged. And we can say, Lord, protect me from their plans, which I know are ultimately Satan's plans. And how wonderful this is. God not only tells us how to pray, who can pray, but He shows us the real danger. So that we pray for the right things. What a glorious, glorious privilege we have. Ming stood at the bedside of a bitter, ailing woman. May I pray? If you want to. As he bowed his head in prayer, no words came, only tears. Yet God used those tears to soften that woman's bitterness. And because he softened her bitterness, her health improved dramatically. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson said, More things in this world are accomplished by prayer than we ever dreamed of. And that is absolutely right. Let's bow together in prayer.
My brothers and sisters, some of your burdens I know. I've been here long enough that I'm close to many of you. And I know your burdens. Others of you I do not. I do not presume to know what God is doing in your life. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. The things revealed are for us. I don't know the secret things that God may be doing in your life. But I know that God answers prayer. And I know that He does a great work in the lives of those who pray. Today, may your faith be encouraged. May your walk with the Lord be strengthened. And may you seek the heart of Him who has sought you and brought you to Himself. Blessed Lord, in this quiet moment before we leave, and perhaps the things of this day will take our mind to the world and all of its vanities, may we today recognize how great and awesome you are. How incredible is our privilege to be allowed into your covenant. How wonderful to be those who bow in submission before you and receive answers to prayer. Oh, we bless your name today, Lord. Encourage now each of our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. After the first service last Sunday, somebody said to me, Pastor Brian, Psalm 4 is better than anti-depression medication. I shared that in the second service. I said, now please keep taking your medications. <laughs> Don't stop. But add Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and now Psalm 5 to whatever it is the doctor has prescribed for your health. And let's continue to do that, shall we, as we let these confident psalms work their way into our hearts.